the diamond, I The Empathy Museum presents A Mile in My Shoes. Now, these shoes, which are size 10, are made by Adidas, and they look like a pair of old-school gym shoes, canvas top, rubber sole, sort of a faded colour, faded green, looks like they've been bleached out quite a bit, perhaps immersed in seawater, and they've got the Adidas stripes on them. They're certainly not part of the more modern shoe trainer style. The laces look original, they're quite faded, faded green too. The inside, they have an inner which is quite soft and cushioned. I imagine these have seen a lot of work, perhaps on holiday. These shoes belong to Ian Waterman, and this is his story. When I wake up in the morning, I have to work out where everything is. And I can do that either by lifting up the duvet and having a pier and seeing where everything is, not nice. Or I can try and move things, like I can move an arm. If it goes from being warm to being cold when I try and move it, I know that it's free. I go through a little chess game of where am I? And once I've worked out where everything is, then I can start my campaign of how do I now manage to sit up safely on the edge of the bed and start my day. It's not like learning to ride a bike where once you've learnt the trick, it then stays with you and you just work with it. It's something that I have to attend to all the time. Even sitting in a chair, I have to attend to not falling out of that chair. Sounds crazy, but while we're having a discussion, when I have a discussion with anybody, I fix on an object that's just on peripheral vision somewhere, something that's not going to move. I can focus on that while having a normal sort of conversation, but know that because I've got a bearing, I can stay safe and not topple over. So I'm always attending visually to what I'm doing. If I can't see my limbs, I, I can't control them safely. My name is Ian Waterman. I'm 65 in a couple of weeks' time. I now live in Dorset on a small holding, quite remote, in a wood, in a valley, overlooking some beautiful scenery. Um, we have a national collection of turkeys. That was one just there, talking away in the background, agreeing with me for once. And it's a joy waking up every day. It all started with what I thought was a, a bout of the flu or a cold when I was about 19, working in the Channel Islands as a butcher. But it transpired that what had happened was a virus that I caught had attacked me and my defence mechanism, as well as attacking that virus, also damaged part of the nervous system that we have and it damaged the myelin sheath and the dorsal root ganglia. So the messages that normally control proprioception, and these flick around us all the time, constantly in background, we don't know anything about them going on, that mechanism was suddenly denied to me. They said, you've got a proprioceptive loss. And I thought, mm, don't even think I could spell that, let alone understand it. When 
when people say, well, what is it? What's lost? What's gone? What I usually say to them is, right, you're, you're sat there or standing there with your left hand, with your eyes closed, take your left forefinger and touch yourself on the nose. Now touch with your left forefinger your right knee. Now, you're doing all that with your eyes closed because you have a body map, a body schema, and proprioception manages that process. If you happen to be with someone, and I say to you, right, close your eyes and touch your nose. Okay, so now touch the nose of the person opposite you. You can't do that. Maybe an amusing attempt trying, but you can't actually do that. And the reason you can't do it is because you don't have that connection. I don't have a connection with my body. I am, for want of a better term, disembodied. The prognosis at the time that I got it was you'll always be in a wheelchair. Didn't like that idea. I was quite an angry young youth and, yeah, I was angry and I retaliated against it. And I must have given those around me a very hard time. But eventually, after a lot of determination and bloody-mindedness, really, um, I started to be able to take control. It all came together one morning, laying in bed in hospital, and I wanted to sit up. What I had to do was to actually look carefully down my body and place my legs in an A shape or a B shape looking down. I then put my arms down by my side and as I lifted my head, I could see that I was partly curling and sitting up. And as I applied more tension in certain muscles, in the tummy muscles and that, I found that I could, in a fashion, sit up. Eventually, after a couple of minutes, I did sit, and I was so euphoric that I let go of the thought of the process that had got me there, and I nearly fell out of the bed. A big stage in becoming mobile again was learning to stand, and it took me many, many months. Then I had to learn how to move my legs and to shuffle and to, to move forward, so I lifted one leg and immediately fell over. What I learned fairly quickly was that if I stand and I want to lift my left leg, I have to incline slightly to the right to allow for that to happen. No one told me that. I'd found out the hard way, but it was a lesson I wasn't going to forget. So what keeps me going? Pride, bloody-mindedness. Um, I don't know, I didn't want to be an incumbent on anybody. I went from being a 18, 19-year-old in the Channel Islands, having a great life and with a great career ahead of me, to being back home where my mum had to clean me when I went to the toilet. It was as primitive and as basic as that. I didn't like that. I, I managed myself. I left home at a young age. I was making a go in the world, and I wanted to continue doing that. I remember a statement my father gave to me many years ago, and it was, the secret of success is to turn adversity into advantage. Quite profound for my dad, and I'm astounded that I remembered it, but I did. And all this came to fruition when I became disabled, and I thought, well, I'd like to do something around access, how accessible environments were for disabled people. And hey, it was something I know something about. 
I've worked for international hotel groups, banking organisations, local authorities, all sorts of environments where I go in, give them advice on how to become accessible. I've been working in that environment now for a good number of years and love it, totally, totally love it. And I arrogantly think, yeah, I've made a bit of an impact in that. One of the benefits, if you want to look at it that way, is the condition is exceedingly rare. And because of that, one becomes quite a special guinea pig to a lot of people all over the world. And it's led to some really bizarre requests. Probably one of the strangest would have been going in a plane and doing parabolic flight. They take off like a rocket, they get to a certain height, and then they just drop the plane out of the sky for a number of I don't know, 25, 30 seconds, and for that period of time, you are weightless. What I do know from this experiment is that I, you know, I could get a gold medal for England for vomiting. But the research that came out of it was useful. They were able to understand certain virtues of how the um, nervous system worked within a weightless environment. Oliver Sacks was an amazing man. He made it cool to be me. You know, when I first became disabled, I was the first disabled person I'd ever met. But when I started reading Sacks' books, you know, he made disability, he personalised it, he made it more normal, and he, he looked at it in ways that humanised it and didn't, didn't sort of just keep you in a jar and bring you out and have a look at you as a funny object, you know. And for people who were different to be accepted. I was chatting to him once and um, he was telling me about his work at this hospital in New York and I said to him, God, Oliver, I said, you know, I'm bloody eccentric, mate. And he said, I am well aware that if I didn't have a badge with my name on the coat, I may not be let out. Occasionally, you know, I, I, I get a bit maudlin about, you know, not being able to be as spontaneous as I used to be. I have to plan ahead for even the simplest of things. And I miss the freedom of being able to say, I just want to go for a walk. In, in my first phase, up until I became disabled, I'd get the dog, go for a walk and think about the environment I was in. The middle phase is all that was gone, all that lovely stuff of looking at clouds and that, I had to stop find somewhere safe to sit, and then if I chose to stare, I had to make sure that I wasn't going to fix on something like a moving cloud, because that would make me fall over. I'm now in phase three, and from a wheelchair, I can now enjoy my environment again, uh, being able to just say, yeah, I'll stop it and have a look, and it's fabulous, you know. I get tremendous satisfaction that, yeah, I've beaten it. I've beaten it today and I beat it yesterday and I hope I can beat it tomorrow. Ian's story was produced by Rachel Simpson. His shoes are part of a growing collection of footwear hosted by the Empathy Museum's A Mile in My Shoes exhibition. The shoes and stories come from all over the world. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to find out where we're going next. <laughs>